I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined. Around 360,000 babies are born a day, but that number is dropping. For some, the financial cost is just too high. But one researcher says there's another cost to having kids. It's absolutely the case that there's a tremendous amount of life meaning to be gotten from parenthood. But if you look at people's day-to-day existence, or if you look at their long or short-term assessment of how they're doing in life, you will see that they report having more trouble than people who don't have children. Then what about the environmental impacts of having a kid? As the climate crisis rages on, we'll hear from a philosopher at Johns Hopkins who says we should think twice about having huge families. The choice to have a child raises your all-time carbon footprint by about 600%. The societal, ethical, and environmental impacts of having children and how COVID could shape the choices of future generations. All ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. For thousands of years, humans procreated for practical reasons. Children helped on a farm or could generate more income for a family. But in 2020, the industrialized world looks a lot different. And the decision to have a child now is quite possibly the most daunting and significant we'll make. Having a child ensures our legacy, economically benefits society, and can provide meaning to our lives. So why not have kids? Increasingly, research and data says the dilemma of parenthood is complicated by the fact that, on average, American parents report being 12% unhappier than non-parents in America. Not only do parents report being less happy, but also having more health issues, with the constant stress of juggling work and family and the pressure to do it all. And compared to other developed nations, American parents bear considerable financial strain with minimal government assistance. To talk more about these findings and the parenthood paradox, I'm joined by Jennifer Glass, a professor at the University of Texas, where she serves as the executive director on the Council of Contemporary Families in the Department of Sociology and Population Research Center. Professor Glass, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to kind of start with the big picture here um, to give a sense of context of what's going on across the world. Um, Are birth rates rising or dropping um, all across the globe? Um, What are we seeing in terms of trends right now? Right now, we are seeing declining fertility in virtually every country on the planet. There are a couple of countries that are stagnant. That is, they're not declining, but they're also not rising. There are, uh, to the best of my knowledge, no countries where fertility is actively increasing above replacement level. So that is, we have some very, very low fertility countries that are upping their fertility rates by policy choices, but we don't have any nations where without policy intervention, we see fertility rising. And I mean, when you say fertility, does this mean kind of, I mean, actual fertility rates, like how fertile people are, or just how many kids people are actually having? It's both. It's literally the average number of children born per woman in that country. And so we have a variety of demographic methods for understanding how to predict that for uh, the current cohort of young women who are of childbearing age. And we've been pretty successful and pretty accurate at getting that number for every nation on earth that has accurate Uh, census records, specifically records about births. Mm. And this would be most of the developed world and most middle income countries. So the only places where it's still difficult to get birth data would be those where women are still living in rural villages and still giving birth at home without uh, registering those births. And that's extremely rare in this day and age. So we can safely say that global population will increase slightly over the next 30 to 50 years. And at that point, it will start to decline. And the nature of that decline and how precipitous that decline is in global population depends a lot on which part of the region of the world you're talking about and about policy choices that uh, different nations will be making in the future. Gosh, can you say more about that decline? I mean, what, from your research, what, what is behind that? Some of the decline is naturally occurring and it is very good news. As we move, by that I mean it's very good news for the planet and it's very good news for the people living in those modernizing societies. So for millennia, uh, human beings since the agricultural revolution made their living through farming. That is, they were extracting things from the land. And in those kinds of countries and in those kinds of Uh, economic systems, having a large family was a benefit. Living in a household with lots of people was a benefit. You could plant more, you could harvest more, you could create a surplus that could see you through a tough winter or a famine or a drought. 
And moreover, we saw incredibly high infant mortality rates and incredibly high rates of early death due to disease. So you had to bear a lot of children in order to have at least some of them survive to adulthood and in particular support their parents in old age. That's the agrarian system and it's completely broken down with modernization and the industrial revolution. So it took about 150 years for the United States and most of Northern Europe to go through the industrial revolution and we saw a very gradual decline in birth rates. What's happening now is that there are many countries around the world that are going through this process of industrialization and demographic transition to low birth rates in about 25 to 50 years. Uh, so South Korea did it in about 25 years, moved from having four or five children per family to having one. Hmm. Um, that's extreme. And it shows you the pressures of industrialization to limit family size. Children move from becoming economic assets to becoming extreme economic liabilities. And that's really the nature of what we're seeing. Now, much of this is good because when you have a lot of children, you can't expend a lot of money on their education and their training. Modern societies need educated and trained workers. They don't need a lot of people who only have a sixth grade level of literacy. Um, so these lower population sizes, these smaller birth cohorts enable education systems to grow. It enables the standard of living for each child to improve, and it raises the standard of living for the country overall. So all of those are very good things. Uh, we call this process demographic transition as a country moves from an agrarian base where everyone's a farmer to an industrial base where most people live in cities. So that's all natural. That puts a population in balance with its environment. Uh, so the population is not rapidly growing and it allows for the implementation of lots of collective projects like roads and bridges and schools and universities and things of that nature. So all of that is good. The problem is that those pressures don't stop when you've achieved a ripe industrialized economy, they continue to grow. In fact, what happens is that we see that the price of children, that is the period of their dependency and the cost of their education and training just continues to go up and up and up. As any family with more than one child who's planning on sending them to college can tell you, it's an enormous drain on finances. Mm. And as we've seen with the recession, many times they don't leave home until they're uh, late 20s, maybe into their 30s, and some nations even into their 40s. So it's led to this postponement of marriage, long period of dependency for children in which parents are responsible for them, and then a subsequent decline in fertility in the next generation. So it's a pattern that has worried demographers for a very long time. It's extreme in many countries, especially in East Asia and the United States. But there are other countries that have figured out how to cope with this um, I sometimes call it natural, but it's actually an unnatural pressure to reduce fertility. And those nations are generally the ones that have kept childbearing at about replacement level. Mm -hmm. Most people report wanting two to three children. They expect to have fewer than that. So we know that the desire to have children has not declined. What has declined is the ability to actually produce those children to feel financially secure enough and relationship secure enough to feel confident having one child or two children. It's interesting to me that you're hearing from a lot of families that they want two to three children, but maybe they get one, maybe they get two, because I think it speaks to this tension in all of this, which is that um, that that we should want kids or that kids should make us happier. But, but it sounds like ultimately it boils down to finances. It boils down to this kind of industrialized culture that you're talking about. But there is, I think, a tension there, right, between what we think we want versus what we will really ultimately get, I guess. Yes. And I think that that's the disjuncture that so worries me is that we've created a new social compact. And I'm going to use the words of the MacArthur genius, uh, Nancy Fulbright, who wrote that this new social compact is one in which the costs of children are privatized, but the benefits of children are socialized. And by that, I mean that individual parents are expected to assume all of the costs of the dependency period of childhood and early adulthood, all of the costs of housing them, all of the costs of their medical care, all the costs of their education and training, except, of course, for those periods of time when they're in public schools. But we know that public schools have been in crisis in some locations as well. And oftentimes you need after school care or after school assistance, even when your kids are enrolled at public school. So that's kind of the, the nature of the problem. All the costs have been privatized to parents. But once that young person is educated and trained and capable of renting an apartment, getting a partner and living outside of their uh, parents' home, 
who gets the benefits of that? Well, the benefits have been socialized. An employer gets this great employee who's been educated and trained by someone else's dollars. Our tax base gets a nice big income tax off of that person and then another payroll tax for Social Security and Medicare. All of that money is going to be dispersed both to people who had children and people who never had children. So the benefits are socialized. The costs are privatized. That's where we are right now. And that's why we're so nervous about systems like Social Security and Medicare that rely on a birth cohort to contribute to support their parents' cohort in old age. So it's no longer within a family. It's across large cohorts of citizens in a country. Mm. Well, if we look kind of beyond the finances of this, I mean, let's talk about socially what's going on or even psychologically what's going on. I mean, we are taught, at least in America, to think that having kids will be the most meaningful and arguably the happiest period of our lives. It's something we need to do. And if you don't, you're missing out on something. What does your research tell us about this? Well, let me first say that I I believe all of those things. I'm a parent. I think it's the best thing that I ever did. I love my children. I believe that they brought me great happiness. Um, And I'm I'm very much American in that way of thinking. But it's not true. All the survey research that's been conducted really for about the past 40 years has shown that while extremely meaningful, it's absolutely the case that there's a tremendous amount of life meaning to be gotten from parenthood. But if you look at people's day-to-day existence or if you look at their long or short-term assessment of how they're doing in life, you will see that they report having more trouble than people who don't have children. Uh, I like to tell my students that the difference between having a child-free existence and becoming a parent is the difference between having a a kind of boring flat life uh, if you don't have children versus having this kind of roller coaster kaleidoscope of ups and downs. The highs are extremely high and the lows are extremely low as any parent can tell you, who had a child with a disability or a serious illness. Um, So the reason that parenthood can be stressful is precisely because we love our children so much and we care so much about their well-being. So that brings both positive, but it also brings uh, great negative emotions and feelings. And we also need to pay attention to the fact that family constitution itself is affected by these economic changes and how we make a living and how we distribute resources. It's more difficult for people to feel that they can get married because they feel such economic instability and such uh, grotesque wealth inequality across households. Mm. So the increase in non-marital childbearing is something that we see all over the industrialized West, and we're starting to see it in East Asia as well. So all of these things are interconnected. When people don't feel secure in their jobs, they're less likely to form stable partnerships. Um, They're much less likely to plan for their pregnancies, for example. So when children happen in the United States, half are not planned at the time of conception. So all of these things are interrelated. So Mm -hmm. the economics of this is kind of the bedrock for a series of family changes that have also made it harder to undertake parenthood and feel like you're doing a good job. If we kind of just stay kind of uh, also on the emotional side, I'm thinking many people listening to this will say that the decision to have children kind of may not have anything to do with economics, but one, it's purely emotional, you know, the desire to take care of someone or to love someone. Does that hold up here at all in research? I mean, is that an important argument as well? Um, I I think that's true. I think a lot of people don't really understand the responsibilities of parenthood, but that might get you through your first birth. It's definitely Mm. not going to get you to number two. And that's part of what's been going on. Uh, But I would argue that we are seeing the effects of this economic crisis even among teenagers. So the teen pregnancy rate has been rapidly decreasing since 2008. And no one has ever made an argument that teens don't think with their heart, not their head. So I really think that when you look at the groups that have restricted their fertility the most since 2008, it is low-income high school graduates and teenagers So I think people are beginning to feel as though no matter what they want to do, no matter how much they want to have a child, that the timing is not right Mm -hmm. and that they don't have the resources to take care of that baby and they don't see anyone around them who's going to help them. What about the societal pressure of saying you need to have a kid or you're not going to live a complete life? You know, uh, I I feel that's a really strong one. Do, Do you does that I mean, does that come up in some of your conversations on this topic? It is. We have an, uh, a, a very religious ideology in particular that suggests that you're really an incomplete adult if you don't have children and that the purpose of marriage 
is procreation. Right, exactly. And I think that those sentiments are still, you know, very, very profound. And I think that people can hold those beliefs and yet also feel that the time is not right for them or that in general people should be doing this, but I'm the exception. And so we're kind of turning into a nation of exceptions. It sure would be nice to have a child, but I think the world is too polluted or overpopulated, or I personally don't have the characteristics that would make me a good parent Mm. or, you know, millennials have a lot of justifications for why they don't have children. Yeah. Let's stay right there. What are those? Because I'm really interested in that subject. What are you hearing about this? I think that if I were a millennial and I was reading how difficult it was going to be to get a good job, to find a house that I could afford, um, to uh, pay back my student loan debt, which could be significant, and then I looked at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's estimates for how much money it takes to raise a child, I would feel, oh, I can't do that. Which is how much, roughly? Uh, it's about $250,000. Mm. It's probably a bit more than that. I haven't looked at it lately. Yeah. But it's, it's about a, a, a quarter of a million That's dollars. That's a lot. Of, yeah, a it's, a lot, it's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of money. And that just gets you to 17. That does not include higher education. Right. So tack on so, another yeah. half a million dollars these days. That's right. Yeah. Tack on another <laughs> half a million dollars. But I think we also have uh, a perception among many millennials that we have an environmental crisis and that uh, children are, you know, little polluting agents and that maybe we need to reduce the impact of humans on the planet. And I, I can't argue with that, but I don't know of any country on earth that has maintained a healthy uh, economy and a healthy society while their population aged rapidly. Yeah. So that's really the problem is that you can lower population, but you have to do it pretty much among all birth cohorts simultaneously. You can't reduce the number of children and let the number of elderly balloon and have a healthy population and a healthy economy. And if you don't believe me, just look at Japan. Uh, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, we were so afraid of Japan. Japan was building everything and they were doing a good job and they were going to just outcompete the United States and we were in big trouble. Now, who's saying that today? Anybody? <laughs> mm, right. And the reason is that Japan has rapidly aged. They have one of the lowest birth rates in the world. They did not respond to this well by incorporating any elements of women's empowerment to encourage mothers to be in the paid labor force. And, so, and they have this huge uh, industry of extra school schooling that you have to pay for to get your kid into the most competitive secondary schools and colleges. And as a result, Japan has this elderly population very few young people, uh, many schools that are closing, uh, still great difficulty finding housing that's affordable in Japanese cities, and many, many elderly people who live far apart now from their grown children. Mm. So not a recipe for an economy that's going to do well. And if you look, Japan has basically been moribund since the 1990s and is no longer seen as a huge economic threat to the United States or anybody else. That might be the way China goes in another 20 years. Russia is showing all signs of looking like the same trajectory as Japan right now, a rapid population fall. Uh, The last time I was in Russia was probably about six years ago, and I was stunned at the number of large, empty apartment buildings in the suburban rings on the outside of Moscow. These were things that had been built in the 60s mostly to house workers, and the population had fallen so much in urban areas that they now sat as these empty, hulking symbols of population decline. Yeah. And, you know, to me, this is really interesting because like when I ask, let's say, friends around me that decide not to have children, I think you you don't ever think about the, the larger consequences of population decline. If you don't have children, you are actually still relying on people around you to have children to take care of you, to keep the economy going long term. I just don't think That's that right. really factors into a lot of people's thinking. No. So what I like to tell people who want to remain childless is that's fine. But you need to understand that when you are 60, you're going to need a dentist and you're going to need a doctor and a lawyer, but you're also going to need someone to pick up your garbage and you're going to need uh, someone to visit you with Meals on Wheels when you get elderly. And you're going to need somebody who writes the news and puts it on the radio that you listen to every day. And all those people are going to be younger than you. They are people that were educated and trained on their parents' money. Mm-hmm. And you get to benefit from that. Professor Jennifer Glass from the University of Texas, thank you so much for the time. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Still to come, we'll hear from a New York Times bestselling author and an ethicist about the history of parenthood and why some people say the best way to tackle climate change is by not having children. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. 
Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Professor Jennifer Glass about how the stressors of modern family life impacts our decision to have kids, illustrated by the declining birth rate in most industrialized nations. But what about the environmental impact of having a child? And what's the current pandemic teaching us about parenthood? A little later this hour, we'll hear from Jennifer Sr. from The New York Times about her take on parenting in the pandemic. But first, to kids and our carbon footprint. Travis Reeder has thought a lot about this. He's a research scholar and the director of the Master of Bioethics degree program at the Berman Institute of Bioethics at Johns Hopkins University. He's also the author of Toward a Small Family Ethic, How Overpopulation and Climate Change Are Affecting the Morality of Procreation. Travis Reeder, welcome to the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, we talk a lot about ways to curb greenhouse gases, electric cars, green energy, eating less meat, but not so much about limiting population or having less kids. Why, why does that sometimes not seem to come up? For the most part, I really think it's just because it's so taboo. Mm-hmm. And um, I should note that it's getting less so uh, over recent years. When I first started publishing on this topic, call it 2012, 2013, I began my research Um, It was genuinely taboo. There was nobody writing on it. And I even had an advisor, uh, still in graduate school at the time, I had an advisor tell me, if you write these papers, no one will publish it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Not a conversation people are ready to have. Um, So that's changing a little bit, but it's still an an incredibly invasive, very personal, very intimate conversation. It's way easier to talk about recycling. Right, of course it is. Yeah, well, I mean, why why don't we kind of jump into the arguments here? I mean, how big of a difference would it be for our climate and for the environment if we decided to to not have kids or, or, or severely limit the number of kids that are being born? Well, so there are two different ways to ask the question. Um, you could ask it from a kind of policy standpoint. You know, if we collectively could make a decision that would significantly reduce the birth rate, what kind of effect would that have? And then you could ask the individual question, you know, given the sorts of things that I can do, given the choice options that I have, does it make a difference? Or should I, in fact, you know, have fewer children or or not have any children? And on both versions of the question, the answer is it's an incredibly significant uh, driver. Having children is an incredibly significant driver of greenhouse gases. um, But obviously, you as an individual can't do much to curb climate change. I mean, most of us as individuals can't do anything. Hmm. So, the policy level is where change would actually happen, right? And so there's been some research into this. A scientist named Brian O'Neill, probably 10 years ago now, did an initial study where he asked, you know, if we could reduce the birth rate globally by about half a child per woman, then what would that do to global greenhouse gas emissions? And on his calculations, the answer was uh, we could basically take 16 to 29 percent of what we need in order to accomplish limiting warming to below dangerous levels just with that so just by reducing uh, fertility by that amount and importantly he said that's an amount that we could reduce it through completely non-coercive means just giving people access to education healthcare, um you know family planning that sort of thing so that's obviously a big deal. 16 to 29% of all of the reductions we need, that's more than anything else, like any other kind of single intervention that you could imagine making a dent. So, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, if, if we made one major change to our society, and this has nothing to do with eating meat or driving electric cars, if we, if we had, you know, half a kid less per woman, uh, you think that would be the biggest driver in curbing greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, probably. I mean... You could imagine other ways to think about like single biggest difference. I mean, if <laughs> if your single biggest difference is completely decarbonize the economy, well, that one wins, sure. right? Um, but yeah, as far as kind of you know major interventions go, think about it as what some of my colleagues and I have thought of as the completely non-coercive suite of interventions. So just like Brian O'Neill was talking about, 
make sure that everybody has access to education, healthcare, family planning, everything's free. Um, there's no coercion at all in, involved there. It's just that people only have kids when they want to, right? Mm. Well, that's something that's demanded by justice anyway. It's not only wrong, it's the sort of thing that you ought to have access to. And that already has this incredible implication. So yes, um, that's a really promising intervention in terms of the amount of greenhouse gas uh, emissions reductions that you could accomplish. Right. And I wonder, I mean, on average, is there a way to calculate how much CO2 emissions one human makes, let's say in a course of a lifetime? Do we have any sense of that number? Yes. So good. So now let's switch to the individual side. So, you know, we're not in charge of policy and, you know, it's probably unrealistic to think that sweeping fertility policies are going to be adopted. So now people want to say, well, what should I do? And on the one hand, if you're thinking I'll only do something that makes a real difference, well, then you won't end up doing anything because you as an individual, you know, you're not going to even put a dent in the trillion tons of carbon that, you know, equals two degrees Celsius warming. So it's not about making a difference. It's about kind of the relevant difference that you can make or the relative, sorry, difference that you can make. So um, now think about among the suite of options that you have as an individual, how much does it do not to have a child? And so there was a, another group of scientists, uh, two guys named Murtagh and Schlacks in 2009, published a paper that's now kind of a, a classics in this literature um, where they coined the term carbon legacy of individuals. And their basic point was, well, look, Obviously, procreation has the most impact of anything that you can do because if you choose not to have a child, then on average, that person chooses not to have some number of children who and those people choose not to have some number of children. So, you know, you think about procreation, we kind of stand on top of an iceberg of future hmm. emissions. And so when you choose not to have a child, you're carving us off a slice of that iceberg indefinitely into the future as long as we are net positive emitters and so they came up with a ratio and they said look you know, they didn't actually give an argument for this they just thought it was intuitive and i actually agree with them um, they said look you are responsible for one half to the n of your uh, offspring's emissions and that n is the number of generations uh, far away from you they are so basically I'm, I'm responsible for one half of my child's emissions one quarter so one half to the two right of my grandchildren's emissions one eighth of my great-grandchildren's emissions and so on hmm. and that allows you to actually you know you run the calculus and it kind of uh, eventually gets to zero rounds to zero and when you run that math they say that on you know business as usual futures on a model that predicts that we're going to act basically like we are into the future um the choice not to have a child is not only the most effective thing that you can do in remove in reducing your um, emissions but when you do have a child you wipe out all other emission savings that you could potentially have by a lot and so there on their calculations the choice to have a child raises your all-time carbon footprint by about 600 hmm. percent right so it's huge so so for them that was about ten thousand metric tons which is about six times your non-procreative lifetime carbon uh, impact if you're say an average american that's a that's a really big number. I mean, and and, and, and and is it is it as simple as just you have a kid and they need stuff? They need to eat food. They need to buy stuff. You got to drive them. I mean, you just you just you just chew up resources. I mean, is this, is it that simple? Well, so it's that plus the legacy part and the legacy right? part. So yeah. yeah so you know, um, spoiler alert: I have a daughter. Right. So that kind of <laughs> makes the conversation <laughs> funny. We'll get right. to that later. Right. We'll get to that. But, you know, so my kid, obviously, she was carbon expensive when I had her, you know, all sorts of diapers. And then we, you know, moved into a bigger house and we'd probably drive more and shuttle her around. So you just think about all the kind of immediate impact. But that's not what gets you to the 10,000 metric tons. What, what gets you to the 10,000 metric tons is that on average, she's going to have about two kids with a partner. And each of those kids are going to have about two kids with a partner, right? Um, so it's it's really that that increase in emissions through the future. And so the really simple way to think about this is, of course, procreation is a big part of emissions because total emissions, like total use or waste of any resource, is a product of the number of people 
times the amount of consuming or emitting that they're doing, right? So if you want to know how much food people eat, you need to know how much a person eats and then how many persons there are, right? So how much emission, how, many, how much emitting are we doing as a population of 7.6 whatever billion people? Well, it's per capita emissions times 7.6 billion or whatever. But of course, there's there's details there because Americans are way more carbon expensive than a bunch of other countries, mm. et cetera. But yeah, it's obvious that the number of t- people matter because asking whether or not it's the emitting or the number of people is kind of like asking what's the volume of a square? Is it, you know, the bottom or the side? Like what's really responsible for the volume? Is it the one side or the other? It's like, well, no, it's, it's both. It, they both matter, obviously. Yeah. You know, part of this environmental conversation about having kids is very dependent upon who is having kids and who is not having kids, depending on the country or their society that you live in, right? Could you say more about that? Yeah. So another thing that I hear a lot from people is, you know, stop worrying about telling us Americans or telling Europeans or telling, you know, wealthy folks in the world to have fewer kids because we're already having replacement or less. Right. right? We're already having two children per woman or one and a half children per woman. But the thing is, we're also the ones doing the lion's share of the emitting. Right. So there are certainly places in the world where they're having few uh, where they're having four or five or, say, Niger is the highest uh, fertility country in the world, they have 7.5 or so children per woman on average. So sure, they have a lot more kids, but they also emit just a tiny, tiny fraction of what we do. And so a really illustrative example is go back to Niger and sure, they have more than seven children per woman, but on average, the last time I looked, so this might be slightly outdated, uh, their annual emissions per person is 0.08 metric tons, right? That's their annual emissions per person. What is in America? Well, something like 15 to 20 Hmm. metric tons, right? So orders of magnitude more. So seven and a half children per woman, when they're emitting that little, doesn't do nearly the damage to the world that my single child does, right? So this is not a one size fits all sort of policy, you know, maneuver where we could just say, hey, everybody gets one kid and that's equal for everyone, because some of us have really environmentally expensive kids. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about your kind of personal situation. You you decided to have one kid. And I guess, philosophically, uh, environmentally, how did you come to that decision? Yeah, um, you know, probably in the strangest way among uh, among humans possible. Um, yeah, so my partner and I were together for quite a long time before we decided to have kids, about a decade. And um, we did a lot of thinking about it. And there were a lot of considerations that went into it. So it wasn't just that having a child increases our impact on the world quite a bit. Um, it's that if we create a child and we only say one, uh, a household of one child, then that's uh, a kid that we're not adopting. And there are lots of kids in the world who need parenting resources. Um, it's that, um, look, the same kind of climate change conversation we're having, you know, I spend a lot of my time in my professional life researching climate change, and the future ain't looking great, right? Mm. So, you know, not only am I worried about her making it worse, just like we all make it worse, I'm worried about her living Uh, with the consequences of what we're doing. And so she was born and my daughter was born in 2014. I should hope as a parent that she lives to see 2100, right? Because you should hope for a long, healthy life for your your child. Well, I know what the world is projected to look like in 2100. And it's not a world that I want to send the person that I will predictably love the most into, right? So we had lots of these conversations and there were incredibly good reasons not to have children. And so then the question is, why did you anyway? Um, And I think basically we had a a series of thoughts about it. So one, um, we think there's a difference between being permitted to do something that's kind of a pure luxury, like, you know, flying across the Atlantic to have a nice meal in in Italy or whatever. There's a big difference from a kind of pure luxury that there's no genuine, meaningful good to come out of and procreating, like procreating, you are building a family in this very special way. And so especially um, if for my partner, who's a woman who had a you know, serious interest in gestating and creating life and seeing what that feels like. Like these are deeply meaningful human experiences. Exactly. And so look, ethicists 
should not forget these things, right? It's not all about crunching the numbers. It's that um, the, you know, the things that we meaning make out of our lives are, are need to go into that calculus as well. Well, what do you think we should kind of as a greater society or just our listeners that are taking this program in? I mean, what should, what, what should we do with this information? What, what would you say is one thing we should really think about? For me, the upshot of this is, is, so I get asked all the time, so do you, you know, ultimately think that, you know, people shouldn't have any kids if they're real environmentalists and, and you were just weak, or maybe that you found the exact right number and that one is the kind of optimal, permissible number, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, so look, my partner and I thought very carefully and for us, we thought we could justify one and no more. Um, I actually think for a lot of people, they can't justify even one because here's a thing that's actually happened in my life. I've known people who, um, don't really want kids that bad and they feel like it's kind of expected of them and so right. they go through with it anyway and i'm like that's not a good enough reason to create life like you have to desperately want it to, to justify bringing a person into the world um so what all this means to me is that people ought to treat procreation the decision whether or not to have children as being the monumentally important moral decision that it is that's what I want people to take from it. We should have kids for reasons and only for reasons. And part of that implies policy, making sure that people have the option of whether or not to have kids, that there's genuine choice here. But part of it is also education, making sure that people actually are able to reflect on their own interests, their desires, how they want to make meaning in life, and then do the thing that accords with that. And I mean, for those that, that really do present this argument of I don't want to have kids or I'm going to limit childbearing uh, because of environmental concerns, I guess part of this takeaway is that we should take that argument seriously as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so um, there was a, a big kind of to do, I think it was last year when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez you know, came out saying that, you know, facing climate change or whatever, she can totally understand why women are choosing not to have children now. And everybody just exploded, which, you know, for the most part, I was just like, welcome to my life. Like, <laughs> yeah, this, sure. is, this is what we talk about. Um, but yeah, like the fact that more and more people are saying this out loud, that we're looking to the future and saying, we've screwed up so badly and we're bringing in such a dark world. We're bringing such a dark world into existence that it might be the wrong thing to do to like invest in the future with another person. Like we ought to take that really seriously for all sorts of reasons. Like, yeah, A, they're presenting arguments that ought to be dealt with, but B, what a condemnation of what we're doing that we could even, that we should even have this conversation. Travis Reeder is Assistant Director of Education Initiatives and Director of the Master of Bioethics Degree Program and Research Scholar at the Berman Institute of Bioethics at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Super interesting. Let's now bring this conversation to the present moment. As many of our listeners know, this has been a wild, wild time to be a parent. COVID has upended our rituals and systems for raising kids. Jennifer Sr. has been writing about this as an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. She's also the author of All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. And she joins me now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So we've heard a lot about the reasons people are electing not to have kids, uh, whether it's finances, whether it's uh, the environmental issues. And I'm just curious, so what did you learn in researching this book that parents don't, don't talk about when it comes to raising children? Oh God! I mean, the, the the boredom of it, right? I mean, I think that's a lot of it. Um, which is funny because even Doctor Spock, who you know, kind of was the only parenting manual, uh, the only parenting voice mid-century. He was the everyone had Doctor Spock's kind of manual on how to raise a kid. Even he was telling moms, "Look, this relationship between you and your baby was never supposed to be so exclusive. Of course, this is you know boring from time to time." People don't like talking about that. They don't like admitting it. Um, the novelist and critic um, Faye Weldon uh, wrote something along the lines of, you know, you think you're a good person until you have a child. I mean, then you discover right. that you can be really kind of, <laughs> you discover the ways you can be monstrous, the way that you can be short-tempered and the way that your own, you're just constantly butting heads with your own shortcomings. And children very quickly reveal to us who we are and what we can and cannot do. Um, yeah. children, when they are asked to independently rank what they do or don't love about their parents, the thing that we get the lowest ratings for always are self-control, 
we tend to yell and lose our patience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people don't like themselves when they do that. And I think that it's very hard to admit like how, you know, we get sort of trapped in these balls of self-loathing about how terrible we've been. There's a really interesting quote in the book that I wanted to quickly read. You write, every debate we have about the role of parents, whether they should be laissez-faire or interventionist tiger moms, attachment-oriented or partial to the rigors of tough love can be traced back to the paring down of mothers' and fathers' traditional roles. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, there was a time when it was very clear what the mother and father's job was. You you fed your kid. Um, there weren't, you know, there weren't really restaurants to speak of. You had to sew your kids clothes. You know, you didn't go to the gap. Um, you educated them eventually. I mean, there's, there have always been schoolhouses, but you know, you would educate them. I mean, it wasn't like there was such a thing as high school in any kind of grand way, um, or anything that anybody uniformly did until like, as I said, after the war, you educated them, you did all of these things and you prepared them for your own trade, right? If you were a blacksmith, they were a blacksmith. If you were a farmer and they were a farmer. So you pass these things along at a certain point. That's not how it went anymore. And now, you know, we even, you know, by the way, nursed them, right? We were even like essentially our kids' own pediatricians. So now, okay, we don't make their food. We buy it in jars. We buy it from McDonald's. We buy it, we get takeout, you know, or prepared food. Maybe we still cook. Great if you still cook. American time use surveys are very clear. Most women now have filthy houses and they have replaced cooking and cleaning with going to work. But you can you can substitute everything I just said. Our schools educate our kids. We have pediatricians for our for their health. We have all these things, right? So one by one, our traditional roles have gone away until we are left with what exactly, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a middle class parent, what do you do? You pour all of that energy, well, in whatever time you have remaining, because bear in mind we're all working very hard, women as well. But you pour whatever remaining time you have into preparing them for this nebulous future that you cannot see, this highly competitive future in this global economy, right? But what that effort involves is unclear. And so every argument that we have, whether it's Amy Chua saying, well, you know, I'm going to insist that my child play not only an instrument, but the instrument has to be piano or violin, and my kid has to be really, really good at the following subjects and has to be a straight A student. Or whether you're more like me, who says, well, my kid just, I want to make sure that I'm, you know, taking care of my kid's emotional needs and making sure that they're getting good feedback and that they're comfortable in their own skin, but I'm going to try and make sure that they've structured their own play. I'm not going to be a cruise director for them. You know, um, it's all because like none of us have any roadmap yet about what to do. The concrete material things that we used to provide for are gone. It's Mm. all higher order things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think all of this is factoring into what we're hearing right now about the pandemic and just the incredible challenge on parents. I mean, this is something you've written about uh, more recently in the New York Times pages. Um, What are we seeing right now kind of within this larger conversation of modern parenthood? (laughs) How much time you got? (laughs) Where where do I go with this? So um, here are the two things that I think the pandemic has unmasked. There are two things. Number one, modern parenthood, we rely more than we know on outside structures to make our lives possible. We rely on school. We rely on after school. We rely on extracurriculars. We rely on our children being able to wander over to another child's house or to see other children. In We rely on all of these things, right? Um, we cannot single-handedly structure our kids' days a handful, I mean, there are, there is a modest percentage of Americans who know how to homeschool and who do it. It's not how most of us do it. It's a full-time commitment, really. So mm-hmm. if you've got a job and four out of 10 American women are actually the, um, pr- the sole or main breadwinners in their families. So most women are now working and I'm not even talking about, and then there are single parent, you know, households. I mean, but the problem is most of us now work. So the pandemic has just been catastrophic in this way. None of us has the amount of time to do all that is required for our children. We were outsourcing it. And I don't mean like paying for fancy stuff. I meant like public school was like a really big part of our lives. Um, So that's a big thing. Um, 
What we know about work and any kind of constructive work is that you have to be in a state of flow. You have to have mm. uninterrupted, unmolested chunks of time to concentrate. And kids are nothing if not wildly disruptive. They are almost inimical to the idea of flow, particularly young kids. Are, um, they're hostile to the idea of flow. They, they cons- their brains conspire against flow. They are c- curious and asking lots of questions and poking around and constantly asking things of us and interrupting us every few minutes. Um, so that's a problem. And also, you know, like I said, um, modern parents don't cook much and they don't clean much. It is the one thing that has really fallen off. What we do is we work, we have a filthy house, and we play with our kids. But now, because of the pandemic, we are forced to cook and clean a lot, right? Like, that's all we do. We make a million meals, we load the dishwasher all day long or wash the dishes all day long. We clean up, we're constantly, we're doing all these things that we didn't necessarily do with the same frequency. Our houses are being used really hard. You know, they're occupied all day long. So it's a nightmare, (laughs) really. It's very hard. (laughs) You you also said there was something interesting in this that like, we're having to both be parents of the 2000s and the 1950s all at once. Yes. Meaning in the 1950s, when your job was to keep a beautiful house and home and to cook and clean and all these things, if that was your, if you were a mother, um, fine, you know, but we now have to do all of that. And we have to be 2020 parents, which means we're probably working, you know, full time or part time. Um, And uh, you can't, those are sort of incompatible. And we also feel the pressure of 2020 parents to spend quality time with our kids, to cultivate our kids to, um, you know, watch TV with them or talk to them, like, in extended ways. 1950s moms blew off their children. There's, like, we spend more time today with our kids in 2020 Mm. than moms did in the 1960s, like, when they were full stay-at-home mothers. Like, they did not hang out with their kids. They hung out with other moms, they volunteered, and they were absolutely hell-bent on keeping a beautiful home. So that's why, by the way, there's a kind of taxonomical, there's a, um, there's a nomenclature thing we could focus on here, which is moms back then were housewives, right? Homemakers. The emphasis was on the word house and home. Today, we are stay-at-home moms if we stay home, right? Emphasis on mom. You have to be a good mom. The house can go to hell. doesn't matter. I, I'm just thinking about, like, how, how do you think this is all going to play out in terms of kind of what we're seeing with parenthood? Um, I mean, do you think we'll see changes? Will people be rethinking maybe having more kids, how they parent? I mean, if you could kind of think about the greater impacts of this moment on the family, what would you say? That's a hard question to answer. I mean, I'm very afraid of making predictions. Um one thing that I would feel kind of confident about short term is um, more people will file for divorce because they tend to. It happened in China. It tends to happen after all natural disasters. But um, here's the thing. As, as you get older, you don't privilege moment to moment happiness as much as you used to. You start to think about what your life is going to look like in retrospect and what's going to give your life meaning. And children are tremendous sources of meaning, even if in real time they compromise your well-being. Everybody, the moment that they can take a breather and just reflect on how much, on what, on what means most to them, they all say they're their kids. Like it, it doesn't matter who does the polling. It could be Gallup or Harvard or Quinnipiac College. It could be anybody. They all say that children are tremendous sources of meaning. And a pandemic could definitely make you feel a crisis of meaning. So it's, I don't want to make a prediction here about what people are going to do. And if you're going to see an uptick in the number of marriages, you can imagine an uptick in the number of births, which, by the way, also happens after a natural disaster. There's good data on that. More births, more marriages, more divorces. So I would not necessarily, even though it seems intuitive, I would not necessarily say, oh, yeah, forget it. This moment is going to put people off after having children for forever. What you just said there, I think, is is really fascinating how children may not make us happy always in the present day, but they provide us with a deep sense of meaning, especially when we think about the narratives that we construct for our life. Oh, yeah. There's been a lot of great work done on this. I mean, the most famous is 
um, Daniel Kahneman, you know, who won a Nobel Prize for sort of almost inventing um, behavioral economics in a sense. Yeah. Um, he talked about the experiencing self versus the remembering self. So the experiencing self, who we are in real time, we clearly don't love being around our kids. In real time, we find it pretty exhausting. There's lots of good data on that. Yeah. But our remembering selves say it's one of the best things we've ever done. And we remember it very fondly. Um, another guy named Dan McAdams has done all this work on how narratives, are, how our our lives are sort of shaped by the stories that we tell about our lives, right? Um, and kids are a big part of that narrative. And, you know, just in general, people regret what they didn't do far more than what they did. So yeah, right. you, you don't want to be, and there's, Kahneman has done a lot of work on that. So the... The idea of not having done something that you could have done, right, is very upsetting to people. So again, by the way, this is not an argument for having children. There are many people who are very clear about not wanting kids. I would never tell anyone to go have kids because it gives their lives purpose. For people who are clear about not having kids, don't have kids. Like, they know, and they shouldn't. I mean, like, yeah. you can lead an utterly fulfilled life without it. But for people who want them or who are on the fence and thinking they might want them, I wouldn't, you can't just discount it and say, well, I won't because of, because of the environment. Like there are, there are other reasons that, you know, your later self might tell you, you know, are compelling, are pretty darn compelling. You're glad you did it. Oh God, of course. Yes. <laughs> very, <laughs> very. I mean, it's unimaginable to me. I can't even like imagine who I would be if I weren't a mother, and I cannot imagine my life without my son, who is by far the most beautiful thing in it. I mean, like, I mean, he's like a skyscraper next to a pre-war building. Everything else is so much smaller next to him, you know? Well, Jennifer Sr. from The New York Times, thank you so much for the time. We, we really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. And this was a wonderful, wonderful chat. Once again, that was Jennifer Sr., op-ed columnist for The New York Times. She's also the author of All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. The show is produced by Andrea Brody with digital support from Jennifer Wolf. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.